Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The next few weeks here are going to be just a little bit different from what we normally do here at, at, at King's Cross. Like our, 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 I think a few of you are new here this morning. So our, our normal flow that we have here as a church is uh, we normally go through like books of the Bible passage by passage and chapter by chapter. Uh, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark since February of last year, and we've been sort of slowly working our way through that. Uh, we, we, we took a couple of breaks since we started uh, once over the summer, uh, and then obviously for Christmas time, like the Advent season, we took a break. Uh, but before we dive back into that book, before we dive back into the Gospel of Mark, we're going to spend a few weeks here at the beginning of the year to do sort of a, like a mini, mini, mini teaching series called uh, DNA, where we're walking through really the building blocks of what it means for us to be a Jesus-centered church. And if you've been here uh, around for any amount of time, you know that like, that's something that we desire to be, a church that is all about Jesus, a church that is centered on Jesus. In other words, we're going to be talking about like, what are our core central values that we hold as a church that wants to be all about Jesus. Now, I'm not a huge fan of the phrase like core values, right? Like it kind of sounds a little corporate-y. So I think you, I want us to think of this sort, sort of like more as like the, the, the building plot blocks of our community here. You can think of it as like our, our family traits. I really like that phrase, our family traits. The colors that we paint with. These are the things that we're praying would be the defining marks of our church family. And so we're going to walk through each of those values over the next several weeks, the things that will always be shaping who we are and what we do as, as a new church family. Uh, we're, still, we're still new at this. We're about a year old. And so what are the things that, that we want to always be true about us? And that's what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. So as we take some, some weeks to revisit uh, sort of uh, those values, our core DNA building blocks, uh, I, I want just by way of preface to let you know kind of what my prayer has been for you guys. 
throughout this series. As I've been praying for this and just sort of planning out the next several weeks, my prayer is, is threefold. One, that in this series, you would ultimately see Jesus Christ on display, that you would see him reflected clearly. I mentioned this a little, just about a minute ago, but like our values, these, these sort of building blocks, they're really informed by what it means to be a Jesus-centered church. <laughs> to be a, a church, to, they're informed by what it means to know Jesus and to walk in his ways in sort of our 21st century like, cultural context. And so, and so that's a, the first prayer that I have is that as we go through these, these values that you would just see Jesus on display. Secondly, I want us through this series as a church family to sort of gain a common language for what kind of church we believe God has called us to be. I want us to gain a shared vocabulary for what we're all about, for who we are and for where we're headed. I'm hoping that as we walk through these over the next several weeks that you're going to be like, oh, so since that's one of our values, that's why we do like that one thing that we do. Right? Like, if you've been around here for a while, I'm hoping that, like, over the next few weeks, you'll be like, oh, so that's why we do that one thing. Or, or that's why Pastor Chris keeps hammering on that one idea over and over again, right? Because these are the things that are important to us. My third prayer for us is that, that, that these, these family traits that we go over is that all of us who call King's Cross our home, that we would just own these, Right? That we would own these. Like if King's Cross is your church family, if this is the spiritual family that you now call home, then these are the traits that we want you to own, to delight in and to display with your, your own lives. And so if you're visiting uh, this morning, then this is kind of really like the perfect series to help you get a sense of what we're all about. And the first family trait we're going to look at is a family trait of truth. Truth, and when I say truth, what I'm talking about is biblical truth. How we love the scriptures, why we're all about the Bible. Like, what goes through your mind when you hear that word? What goes through your mind when you hear the word truth? There's a there's this historic scene in in John chapter 18 where Jesus is on trial towards the end of his life. It's like right before he's about to be crucified, and in John 18, uh, Jesus stands before this dude named Pontius Pilate. He's this government official, and Jesus is basically on trial for supposedly teaching heresy by saying that he's not that he's God in the flesh and that he's the King of the Jews. Now, it was considered a heresy not only because Jesus called himself God in the flesh, but it was considered a heresy because they believed that, uh, you know, the, the, the senior uh, royal officials, that they were the ones that had divine power. And so if Jesus is coming in and saying that he's the king, if people are calling him the king of the Jews, then that means uh, that, 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 that he is the one in charge and not these government officials. And so they, they, that kind of ticked them off, right? And so Jesus is on trial before Pontius Pilate, and Pilate asks Jesus, so, so what is it? Are, is this true? Are you saying, do you claim to be the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds, and he says, yes, but I'm a different kind of king. I'm a king that's not from this world. My kingdom is in heaven. And then Jesus gives one of the primary reasons that he came. He says in John 18, he says, I came to bear witness to the truth. That's one of the primary reasons Jesus came. 
He says, I came to bear witness to the truth. And he says, everyone who is of the truth, in other words, everyone who believes in this truth that I bring, listens to my voice. And Pilate responds with this age-old question. He says, what is truth? What is truth? Jesus says, I came to bring truth. And Pilate asks, what is truth? And when he asks that question for Pilate, it's not an honest question, right? Like you can almost see like his smirk coming up on the side of his lip. Like this wasn't a sincere question, but a cynical question. But the popular question, a uh, popular belief in the time back then, which was also, which is kind of also true of, of, of these days now, is that there was this huge sort of uh, uh, a doubt cast over the culture that there was really any such thing as objective truth. There was this, this doubt cast, this cultural doubt that, that, that there was even such a thing as truth. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you know somebody like that where, where, where they really have doubts as to the, the, the fact that there really is this concept called truth, right? Uh, I, I, I love engaging with sort of like my, 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 my skeptic friends when, when we talk on this topic. They're like, well, how can we really know that anything is true, right? Like I believe that you can't know that anything is absolutely true. true. I can't believe that, that in any, any sort of absolute truth uh, and then, you know, you usually respond and say, like, well, are you absolutely sure about that? Checkmate, right? <laughs> kind of self-defeating belief. But, but, I mean, that's really like a, a cultural, uh, a, a heavy cultural belief that exists today. That there really is no such thing to be known as truth. But maybe you're, you're different than Pilate. Maybe you're honestly asking that question this morning. Maybe you're not coming at it with cynicism, but you're genuinely curious, like, is there truth? Can truth be known? Maybe you've got some baggage when you hear that word truth and you think of it. Maybe when you think of the word truth, you're like thinking of somebody who, who in your life who has used truth as, as a weapon to attack, to attack you or to judge others. Wherever you land on that question, here's what we're going to learn about truth this morning. I'm going to give you the outline on the front end. We're going to first look at what is truth. Next, we're going to look at what does truth do for us. And lastly, we're going to talk about how we receive this truth. And we're going to jump around to a bunch of different scriptures in the Bible. Let's uh, tackle that first question first. What is truth? What is truth? Now, what is truth is sort of the age-old question of what's called epistemology. Epistemology is the branch of philosophy that really deals with, like, how do we even know what is true and what's not, right? Like, how do we even know that we can know something, right? Like, in John 17, though, Jesus is praying to God the Father. Jesus in John 17 is praying to God the Father, and in his prayer, he utters these words. He says in John 17, 17, he says, Lord, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus is praying for his disciples here. He's praying for his followers. 
the followers that existed in his day and time, but also his followers who exist throughout history. So if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, then that means that this prayer that Jesus uttered in John 17 was a prayer for you. And in that prayer, Jesus says, Lord, would you sanctify them? Sanctify my disciples. Sanctify means set them apart. Would you set my followers apart from the world in the truth? And then he says, your word, Lord, is truth. So what is truth ultimately? Truth is the words of God. Jesus says, Lord, your word is truth. So when we talk about truth as like a family trait that we want to own, when we talk about truth as a family trait, what we're talking about is ultimate truth. We're talking about biblical truth. What we're talking about is, 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 is the scriptures, that, that truth can be known and that truth is made known by God. Now, that's a profound statement to make in our world today, that you can know truth. That truth exists and that it can be known. Like, I don't know how well acquainted you are with the culture that we live in, but that can be an unfashionable statement to say these days, to say that, that truth can be known. Celebrities talk about this a lot. Like, if you follow them on, on, on social media, like Twitter or Instagram, you'll, you'll see, like, Oprah sort of dropped this line in her Golden Globe speech uh, this last year. Uh, she talked about how we all need to find, like, you need to find your truth. You need to tell your truth. It's like, what does that even mean, right? Like, what does your truth mean? What does it mean to say that you have your truth and that, that I have my truth, right? Like, uh, I'll give you sort of a hot tip, right? Like, th this whole idea about, like, you have your truth and I have my truth is born out of, out of postmodernism. This movement called postmodernism, which, uh, which actually gets a bad rap, like in a lot of uh, 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 circles, like uh, especially in the Christian worldview circles, and honestly for good reason. But there's some good things that came out of postmodernism. Like postmodernism kind of taught us that look like we're, we're not all just thinking beings, but we all have experiences too, right? And our experiences matter, right? We're not just, we're not just head, but we're also head and heart, right? Like, that's, that's kind of one of the, the good things that came out of postmodernism. But then, like, postmodernism as a movement took that way too far and started saying, like, hey, look, because I have my experience and you have your experience, and that means that you have your truth and I have my truth. And therefore, there's no such thing as the truth. And that's just asinine, right? Like, that's a self-defeating statement. Like, you can't assert that as something true while saying that there's no such thing as the truth, Right? Postmodernism taught that, you know, truth is in here and not out there. Truth is not something that we can know objectively, they say. It's something that we have to decide for ourselves kind of what works for us as far as what's true and what's not. Like, we make our own truth. That's what makes the Christian worldview statement about truth, like, so profound, especially in this day and age. And so with this family trait of truth, what we're saying as a church is that we kind of are standing against that cultural tide, and we're saying that, no, truth can be known. Truth comes from God. It can be known, and it has been made known in his word. 
And that's one of the most amazing claims of the Christian worldview, that God, the creator, has revealed things about himself in creaturely words so that he could truly be known by us. That tells us, like, if you ever find yourself wondering what is true, if you ever find yourself wondering what is true about goodness, what is true about, about me? What is true about people? What is true about why we're good sometimes and why we're bad most of the time? What is true about the world? What is true about my purpose? What is true about God's purposes? If you want to know what is true, then you come to God's word. Your word is truth, Jesus prayed. Truth can be known. It's fixed in the heavens. That's a phrase from the Psalms. It says that again and again. Lord, your word, your truth is fixed in the heavens. In other words, it's unchanging. And it's revealed to us in the words of the scriptures. Now, turn to Psalm 19, and I want you to read the first five verses with me. The first five verses of Psalm 19 say this. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Now, as we're reading this, I want you to think about just how beautiful and poetic this is, right? Like, these are words, this psalm are words describing not just the beauty of our creator, but the beauty of his creation. Now, now, now read that again. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Verse 2, day to day it pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now, What is David, the psalmist, speaking of here? He's talking about how the beauty of God's creation, right? The beauty of God's creation. He's talking about how the the heavens, the stars, the sun, the moon, in its natural beauty and order of things just reveal the glory of God. In other words, when you just look at creation, and you marvel at it, when you look at the elaborate design of the universe, how it's finely tuned with space and time and physics and gravity to just display the stars and the planets and just whirl us around at just the right speed, at just the right distance so that life can flourish on earth. Like when you think about that and when you see that and witness that, just the sheer awesomeness of nature is evidence to us that there's a creator and a designer behind it all. Like have you ever stopped to really just consider how beautiful and amazing and finely tuned creation is? Now what does this have to do with truth? What's important for us to see here in this psalm in relation to truth is that if you look at these verses in light of the whole psalm, the rest of Psalm 19, we see that the idea that David is getting across is he's saying that, look, even though nature is going to tell you great things about God, it doesn't tell you enough. Even though nature 
in its sheer awesomeness is going to tell us amazing and awesome and great things about God. It doesn't tell us enough about him. It doesn't tell us enough about us. We need words. We need actual words. We need special revelation, revealed words. The message of Psalm 19 is that as great as nature is at revealing some great things about God, it can't reveal the greatest thing, the most important thing. It can't reveal how we are to know this God, how we are to be with him. It can't reveal the love and grace of God. In Jesus, we need to be told about that. We need a story. We need a record. We need words, the words of God. And so that's why we believe that the scriptures are important and foundational to who we are as a church family. That's what we believe the scriptures are. The scriptures are God's truth to us. And because he's the creator, God's truth is the truth. It's the only truth. That's why we believe these words to be sacred and authoritative, the words on these these pages in our Bibles. There is power in this book. When you read the psalm, Psalm 19, it talks in those first several verses that we just read about the the sheer awesomeness and beauty and power of creation. We see that there is power in this God, and that power that God spoke creation with is the same power by which he speaks to us in his word. Have you ever thought to consider that? The author of Hebrews tells us that that the word of God is, is living, and that it's active. And so if you have like a, like a physical uh, Bible in your lap, or maybe, maybe you're, you're, you're looking at it up on the screen, or you're scrolling through God's Word on, on, on your phone through an app, have you ever considered, man, these words that you're engaging with, that you're reading, comes with the power of the one who created all that we know. There's power in this book. In fact, this book, in this way, has blood all over it because the enemy has tried to thwart it and, have, and, have God, and God's people have fought over it. Like many men have been persecuted and slaughtered just to get this book translated in the common tongue and available so that it could be in your hands today. That's the history of, of, of this book and, how, and how, we, how we got the Bible, like the modern Bible printed the way that we have because these men believe there's power in these words, which leads us now to our second point. What does this truth do for us? What does this truth do for us? I want us to read now the next uh, few verses of Psalm 19. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. I'm going to stop right there. Now, 
David is using in, in these few verses different words to describe the scriptures, right? He describes them as like the law of the Lord. At another point, he calls them the statutes of the Lord or the precepts of the Lord or the commands of the Lord. Like those are all just different ways, different sayings for, for what, we, what we call the scriptures, for what we call the Bible, God's word, God's truth, now, I want us to walk through what he's saying here, uh, and i got a few sub-points for you on, on, under this on what does God's truth do for us, and I want us to look at what, what, it, what, what it does for us in, in, in these verses. Now, first, we see in verse 7 that it revives the soul. It revives the soul. In verse 7, he says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Now, what that tells us is that somehow, in God's epic ways of the ways that he's been just sort of working throughout human history, in God's epic ways of saving sinful people and restoring them to himself, he's decided that the words of truth, the scriptures, would be the means that he would use to breathe new life into a spiritually dead soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. So if a sinner wants to be saved, if a broken soul wants to be made whole again, if the spiritually lost want to be found, then you need to meet with the living God in the scriptures. And the living God will breathe new life into you. And when you're reading this truth, God's truth, when you're hearing his truth, devouring his truth, his spirit works through those ordinary means, just ordinary words, to do an extraordinary work in your heart. He revives us. Secondly, these verses tell us that God's word gives us wisdom. His truth gives us wisdom. We see that also in verse 7 where it says, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Now, that tells us that in this, in this book, you'll gain the wisdom and knowledge of God. It says if you read this book, this book has a power to make wise the simple. So in this book, you gain God's wisdom. You gain the things of God, the thoughts of God when we read this. You'll learn what it means to walk in his ways, to live as he designed life to be lived. And so, for example, some of, the, some of the wonderful gifts that God made for us to enjoy and glorify him with, things like work, things like food and drink, things like relationships and marriage and sex, those are all also things that we humans tend to pervert and misuse, right? Like God's word, though, it helps us become wise and to understand how to wisely partake in, in the things of God, the ways that he intended. And so like he created us for work. Work is a gift. He created us for work. His word gives us wisdom for work. It tells us that it's good to work, but it also tells us that work shouldn't own you. And if it does, if you find your identity in what you do rather than who you are in God, then your work will destroy you. It'll destroy you emotionally. It'll destroy you spiritually. 
Or like food and drink, God gave us food and drink as gifts meant to be enjoyed and received with thanksgiving. He wants us to to feast from him. He wants us to drink deeply from the well of his spirit so that we don't see any need to indulge in gluttony of food or to get drunk. And he does that. He gives us that wisdom for our own good. He doesn't say don't eat food. He just says don't be a glutton because food makes a bad God, right? Food is a bad thing to find your identity in. It won't satisfy your soul's deepest hunger, which is the problem of the glutton. He doesn't say don't enjoy wine. Like Jesus' first miracle was making wine. He brought the best wine to the party. He doesn't say don't enjoy wine. What he does say is he says don't be a drunkard. He says, don't be a drunkard. Like, it, it's, it's, it's not, and that's for your good. Like, it's, it's to, to, to wake up, like, not knowing where your shoes are, uh, like, on the other side of the border, right? And not knowing how much fun you had last night is not a good thing for you, right? He's do, he, serves, he gives us his wisdom on how to engage these things and how to enjoy his gifts for our good. He's not saying don't enjoy these things. He's not saying don't enjoy these gifts. After all, he's the creator of these gifts. But what he is saying is here are the wise parameters that I created so that you can enjoy these gifts in the fullest, so that you can enjoy them the way I designed them to be enjoyed them. Where do you turn for wisdom? Where is it that you turn for wisdom? David, the author of the psalm, says we should turn to the source of ultimate truth, the words of God. Thirdly, God's truth brings us joy. We see this in verse 8, which says, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Later on, a couple verses later, he says, Your word is more precious than gold and sweeter than honey. You see, one of the things that happens when you encounter God in his word is he, he starts to change your heart. He starts to awaken your soul to the goodness of his ways, and you start to rejoice in him. You start to rejoice in his word, the kind of joy that transcends like even the darkest moments and hours of our life. The word of God is supernatural in that sense. It doesn't just move us, it changes us. And the more you spend time with his word in its pages, the more you spend time there, the more you sort of develop a taste for it. It becomes sweet and it becomes valuable to you. Fourthly, God's truth enlightens the eyes. Verse 8 also tells us the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Now, I love this one. It's the supernatural work of the word again, right? Like it's saying that there's something that happens when you spend time with your Bible and ask God to speak to your heart from its pages. Something magical happens. Something supernatural happens. You start to see the world differently. How many of you have had that experience where you're kind of reading God's word and you're not really sure that you're really comprehending what's going on, but then you just realize that like over time through this regular rhythm of spending time in God's word that you just start to to see things differently, right? 
God just starts to supernaturally give you like new eyes to see. C.S. Lewis has this book where he's reflecting on the Psalms and in it, he tells us that the language in this passage is not meant to beat us over the head, to guilt us into reading our Bibles more, but it's all about drawing us into the beauty of God's revealed truth so that you want to read your Bible. He's like, how could you not want to move from simple-mindedness to God's wisdom? How could you not want your soul to be revived? How could you not want your eyes to be enlightened? How could you not want to taste the, the sweet honey of the word and to behold the beautiful treasures of the word? And so my goal in having us like just touch on this family trait of ours that we care about God's truth. Like my goal is not for you to see like reading the Bible and, and, and listening to sermons as a chore to check off your list, but that you would see it as a treasure to draw from, a well to drink from. Which leads us now to our, our, our last point, which is how do we receive God's truth? How do we receive God's truth? First, you read it. Right? You read it. You read God's truth. You can read it on your own. We just talked earlier about how, like, we have physical Bibles. We have apps. We have websites. It's extremely easy to read God's word on your own in this day and age. I mentioned earlier that a lot of blood has been spilt throughout church history so that, that could be made, this God's word could be readily available to, to you and to me. Jen Wilkin, she's a, a, a Bible teacher. She's a theology teacher at a, an Acts 29 church in Texas. She says, uh, I love this quote from her. She says, if we say, I just love Jesus and that's all that I need, but we don't love the scriptures, then we are loving something we don't really know or spend time with because the scriptures are where he is revealed to us. You see, anytime we come to the scriptures, we come to spend time with God. When we approach the scriptures, we're coming to spend time with Jesus. And so when we open God's word, when you're reading the Bible this week, right? Like, I mean, January is kind of the best time to talk about this because, I mean, most of us who are followers of Jesus, it's like we have this new resolution. It's like, I'm going to read my Bible more, right? Like, how many of us made that one of your resolutions this year, right? Like, Anytime, like when you read your Bible this week, when you open up the scriptures, when you're feasting on its pages, we should ask ourselves, what am I learning about God? What am I learning about Christ here? We come to the scriptures to not just learn about him, but to spend time with him. What am I learning about who he is and what that means for me as someone seeking to follow him? And so read the word of God for yourself. Learn to study it. Now, let's, I mean, real talk here. The reason that, that what many of us have uh, uh, Bible reading as a New Year resolution is because Bible reading can be hard, right? Can we be honest about that? Like, Bible reading can be hard. Sometimes it feels like a chore. Sometimes we're reading and we don't really understand what's going on, and it just gets boring, and it feels dull. 
We want to encourage you with what we've learned about the scriptures so far, that when you encounter the scriptures, you're not just reading a book, but you're reading something alive. You're reading something powerful. And it might not seem like it. It might not feel like it. But we have to trust what God says more than what we feel, right? How many of you have learned with any level of life experience that sometimes our feelings can be unreliable, right? How we emotionally experience the situations that we live in can be like a really bad uh, sort of ruler or barometer for what's really truly going on around us. And look, you might not feel like God's word is living and might not feel like it's active or powerful, but we got to trust that it is because it says that it is. It revives the souls and makes our eyes uh, enlightened. There's a, there's a verse, and it, it, it's helpful for me to think about it in, the, in, in, in this way. Like when, when, when I'm like waking up in the morning, I'm like, man, I just don't feel like um, engaging the, the, the scriptures this morning. There's a couple verses like uh, there's, I, I don't have them up on the screen, but uh, there's, there's like a verse in, in, in Jeremiah where uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the prophet Jeremiah talks about how the words of God, he describes them as like a consuming fire. He says that God's word is like a fire, not just a fire, but like a consuming fire. In Hebrews 4.12, that's when it says that the word of God is living and active. It also describes the word of God in that verse as a two-edged sword. And a two-edged sword that's so sharp it could, it could like divide joints and bones and marrow, right? Like it's a really sharp sword that can almost like cut to the heart in the deepest parts of our souls. So when you wake up in the morning and you're about to like open up God's word, it's helpful to think of like, man, this is a consuming fire. This is a consuming fire. This is, this is a two-edged sword that I have in my hand that can do some like much-needed surgery on, this, on my soul and on my heart. Like when you have these word pictures in your head, it gives you sort of a, a sense of, um, of, of awe and, and reverence for the, the, the words that you have in front of you. Like, if you were going to sort of engage, like put a, have like flaming hot coals in your hand at first thing in the morning, right? Like that would sort of wake you up. That would be kind of interesting to you, Right? You could count on something fascinating to happen. And that's what the Word of God is like. And, and, but also, like, the Word of God is described in, in, in subtler terms. Like, uh, we, we, we read earlier in the Gospel of Mark, uh, early last year, about how the Word of God is like a, it's like a seed, right? And seeds are planted. They're sown. They're planted. And they seem really unassuming, right? But over time, they eventually sprout. And they start to grow. And they start to grow leaves, and they start to bear fruit. And the next thing you know, you can have like this massive tree that just can't be moved. That's what the Word of God is like. It's living. It's active. And it might not seem like it's doing anything in the moment, but you just trust that God is doing work on your soul. He's doing work on your heart when you engage it. 
And so read your Bible. Have, find a Bible plan online. Use the YouVersion app or the Blue Letter Bible website. There's all kinds of like tools and resources that you can uh, use uh, to help you read it and study it on your own. Secondly, we receive God's truth by receiving it with the gathered community. Now, this is talking about our Sunday gatherings here at, at church. We also receive God's word when we gather as a church community on Sundays, right? That's what we're doing right now, right? I'm preaching God's word. We're all receiving God's word. One of the main reasons that Christians have gathered on Sunday, the day that Jesus rose, which in the scriptures, Sunday is called the Lord's Day. The reason it's given that very special name and set apart is because that's the day that we as Christians are commanded to gather together, to worship Jesus together, and to learn from the scriptures together. To sit under the preaching of the word together. Hebrews 10 tells us to never neglect the large gathering assembly of the church. We saw how the word makes us wise and opens our eyes as individuals. But the work of the word doesn't stop there. It doesn't leave us as like detached church people. We're saved not just to God, but we're saved into God's family. We're gathered together by the word, and we grow and multiply by the word. We see this like all throughout the book of Acts. If you, how many of you guys are familiar with the book of Acts in the New Testament? The book of Acts is like the story, basically, of how after Jesus ascended onto heaven, the church just spread in the first century. Like the book of Acts is all about church planting. It's about how churches started and grew and multiplied. And we see that, that in, uh, just in the second chapter of Acts, when churches started to gather in large assemblies, it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says that they, the disciples, the followers of Jesus, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and of prayers. When the church was born, when the church was created, one of the marks of the first century church is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching is much of what we call like the New Testament. They devoted themselves to the studying of the scriptures, to the Old and to the New Testament. We're told elsewhere in the book of Acts that we see this repeated again and again that when churches multiplied, when God's word did its work, it says that the word grew. In other words, the dominion of the word, the word, the, like the, the realm of God's truth increased. We see this in Acts chapter 4. It says, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men that came to about 5,000. Repeatedly throughout the book of Acts, we see that the growth of the church, the planting of churches is attributed to how the word of God spread and how the word of God prevailed. That's why this is a foundational family trait for us at King's Cross. And it's, incidentally, it's, I mean, it's even why we're starting with this family trait. Because the reason we know we should care about all the other traits we're going to talk about over the next few weeks is because they're in God's word. We want to care about the things that God cares about. We want to be all about the things that he's all about. 
And so we value God's truth. We need rhythms of truth week in and week out like the early church did. That's why we're committed to faithful Bible preaching that proclaims this is what God says. This is what the Lord has done. This is the hope for you and the world. And this is truth that comes with power and grace. Don't come here on Sundays to hear like some dude's opinions on the things of God. There's a reason that we stand for the reading of Scripture. We see this like in, in all throughout the Scriptures. We see that God's people, when they gather, that the word was read publicly in an assembly. We see that often people stood, not just in the New Testament, but we see this also in the Old Testament, that they stood for God's word to receive it, right? We don't do those things as just sort of rote exercises, the, re- like what, the reason that we do gatherings, the reason even that our gatherings look the way that they look is because of what we see in God's word. Again, God is taking something ordinary like words, and he does something extraordinary with it. The moment we stop preaching God's word at King's Cross Church is the moment that you should find another church. Like, honestly, if we don't have the word, if we're not growing in the word, if we're not prevailing in the word like the first churches in the book of Acts did, then we're not a real church. We're like a social club or a community cause, which those can be good things, but those aren't churches. Churches that are centered on Jesus, that are all about him, are churches that faithfully engage with the word with God's truth. Third thing that we do is reflect on it throughout the week. Reflect on it throughout the week. Meditate on God's word. It's important for us to be in the scriptures, but it's more important for the scriptures to be in you. We need to be in the scriptures, but it's more important for the scriptures to be kept in you. One kind of helpful way to do this is to revisit the, the, the text that, 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 that we're, we're, uh, we're, we're the, from the sermon each week, right? So, we, you know, we kind of jumped around different passages of Scripture this morning. Maybe revisit those this week. Pray about what you were convicted by in this sermon, right? My sense is that as we're engaging in God's Word, that there's something in, in, in you that, that's saying, like, man, I, there's, something that, there, there's something in this message that like, I, just makes me want to, want to alter the way that I spend my time, change my daily habits. It's not because I'm a persuasive communicator. Ask my wife. I'm not, right? It's because that's what God's Word does. It enlightens our eyes. It makes wise the simple, as we've been talking about. Psalm 1, verses, the first two verses, says, Blessed is the man who walks not on the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he what? He meditates day and night. Meditate on God's word. Don't just read on it, but think upon it. Pray about how God's word is convicting you, how it's challenging you. Maybe how God's word is even challenging you this morning. Let that be sort of a rock in your shoe that like throughout the week, like, man, this is something I need to be praying about. Pray about 
what you were encouraged by this morning. Maybe this, were, this, this morning you're, you're actually like in, in, in encouraged by something. You're seeing God in a new way. You're seeing something beautiful about him that you need to pray about and consider and meditate. The fourth thing that we do, and this is the one that many of us miss, is we need to respond to it. We need to respond to God's truth with our life. This is where your interaction with God's word gets really personal, right? Like when you engage with the word of God, whether it's personally in your study or, or, or on a Sunday gathering like this, you should ask yourself, is there something that I need to do now in light of what God's truth says? Is there something that I need to repent of? Is there something that I need to change? Is there something in me that God is seeking to reorient, to change, to remove, to make new? Read these verses with me in James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verses 22 through 24 says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Now, here's what James is talking about. And I was studying this this week, and this is kind of nuts. Like, mirrors back in James' time, like the first century, they were not every, it just never dawned on me, they're not everyday objects like they are in our day and age. Mirrors back then were not household objects. And for that reason, people just weren't really super acquainted with how their faces actually looked, right? Like, isn't that wild to think about? Like, people weren't as acquainted with their own faces the same way that we are today. Like, I was reading that supposedly the average person in America looks in the mirror 12 to 15 times a day. I'll be honest, I feel like that's kind of low, right? I feel like that's kind of low. Like the disciples that James wrote this, his book to, though, they didn't look in the mirror. They didn't look in the mirror. They didn't have a bathroom mirror at home, a rear view mirror in their cars. They didn't have compact mirrors in their purses or, or like these sort of like selfie-enabled phones in their pockets, right? They didn't know what they look like the same way that we know what we look like. Isn't that wild to think about? But like, and mirrors back then, too, they weren't smooth and shiny and reflective in the way that, like, our, like, super, like, polished mirrors are today. They were actually, like, distorted. They were made out of metal. And the ways that they refined metal and shined metal, uh, just they didn't have the tools that we have today. And so when they did see their reflection in the mirror, it was distorted. When they see their reflection in the water, even then it was like kind of a little distorted, right? It didn't leave a lasting impression. Like they'd walk away and kind of forget what they look like. <laughs> they'd forget the details of their own faces. And James is saying, that's what it's like. That's what it's like when you spend time in God's word and you don't do what it says. That's what it's like when you hear God's word at a Sunday gathering like this, and you walk away, and you don't do what it says. It's like forgetting your own face. 
He says, you know, you gather with the church on Sundays, you sing these awesome songs with these biblical truths, you're opening God's word, you hear an okay sermon for like 40 minutes, and then you walk out the door, and because you only engage with your head, and you didn't engage with your heart, and you're not engaging with your hands, it just doesn't stick. It doesn't transform you. It doesn't leave a lasting impression. It's like forgetting what you look like. You see, we need to respond to God's word with our lives. God's word changes us. It transforms us. It makes us like Jesus. His truth, God's truth, is what sets us apart as followers of Jesus. That's why Jesus prayed in John 17, Lord, sanctify them, set them apart with your truth. Your word is truth. We need to respond to it accordingly, set ourselves apart because of it. So how do we do that? Now, I'll close with this thought. The number one reason that we love biblical truth at King's Cross Church is because ultimately it points us to Jesus. It points us to Jesus. God's truth points us to Jesus. We learn more about Jesus. We learn the story of Jesus from the scriptures, and then we become more like Jesus when we encounter him in the scriptures. Elsewhere in the Gospel of John, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the ultimate truth that all of the scriptures point to. In Luke 24, Jesus was walking with two of his disciples, and he showed them on this road called the Emmaus Road. He showed them how all of the Old Testament pointed forward to him. By the way, I'd give anything to sit in on that Bible study, right? Like in the new heavens and new earth, I'm going to track Jesus down and be like, hey, give me that study, right? The study you gave those two disciples on the Emmaus Road. And in that, Jesus pointed at how all the Old Testament, the whole point of the Bible was to point towards him. Sometimes we read the Old Testament and think like, oh, this is the story of our history, or this is is a story of characters that we're supposed to be like. And that's true in some sense. But in a greater sense, it's the story of Jesus, Old Testament and New Testament. In the Old Testament, we see that Jesus is the truer Adam who passed the test in the garden and lived the perfect life that we could never live. In the Old Testament, we see that Jesus is the truer Abraham who answered God's call to leave the comfort of home and go into a strange and strange uh, place and create a new people of God. In the Old Testament, we see that, that Jesus is the truer Isaac who wasn't just offered by his father but sacrificed on a mountain. Jesus was the truer Job, an innocent sufferer who ends up interceding for his closest friends. Jesus is the truer Moses who delivered his people not from physical captivity in Egypt, but spiritual captivity. Not just from the power of Pharaoh, but from the power of evil, sin, and death. 
You see, all the Bible points forward to Jesus. All of it is about Jesus. Jesus is the truer prophet. He's the great prophet. He's the truer priest. Hebrews calls him the high priest. He's the king. Revelation calls him the king of kings. He's the truer temple, the truer sacrifice, the truer Passover lamb. All of it from Genesis all the way over to Revelation is all about Jesus. The Old Testament is talking about the promises that will be fulfilled in Jesus, the New Testament tells us how all of that was fulfilled in who Jesus is and tells us the record of what he's done, what his life was about, and what he's continuing to do now through his church and history. God's truth is about Jesus. And so if we want to be a Jesus-centered church, then we need to be all about his truth. We'll never move on from it. We'll never not preach God's word on the Lord's day. This is what God calls us to. It's how he sets us apart. It's how he transformed us. And so we read and receive the word to learn about him, to spend time with him, to get acquainted with him. If you want to be like Jesus in King's Cross, we do want to be like Jesus. Then we have to spend time with him. And that's why we value God's truth. We savor it and desire to be marked by it. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.